0: This podcast is available in video at fpcgulfport.org and fpcgulfport on YouTube. You know, back in the Old Testament, it was only the priests who could approach God. Back in the Old Testament, they had this deal where it was only the guys in the tall, pointy hats who could go in behind the veil. Now, you, as an average lay person in the congregation of Israel, you supported them and you sent them in and they went to go to talk to God. That was the idea in Old Testament worship, that the priests were the ones who interfaced with God. They were the intermediaries between God and man. Now, let me ask you a question. If that was the Old Testament, what about the New Testament? If I was to ask you who the priests are in the New Testament economy, who would you say they are? Keep going. Who are the priests in the New Testament? I'm looking at them. You see, we believe in a concept the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers. Now, what does that mean? Well, what it means is this that in the Old Testament, there was a guy in a tall, pointy hat and a long robe and all that stuff, and he went in and talked with God. With that said, now that the veil has been rent, now that Jesus is resurrected and sitting at the right hand of the Father, We no longer have to have some man here on earth intercede for us with God. We no longer have some guy do this on our behalf. Rather, we all collectively, every last one of us, have equal access to his throne. This is a biblical concept that's repeated throughout the New Testament. A couple of examples. 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2 says this, You, this is to all of us, all y'all as they say, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Clearly, this is a passage that's talking about all believers. The book of Revelation says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us a kingdom and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. We are all priests, the priesthood of believers. You and I can approach God, talk to Him, we can worship Him, which is what we're doing this morning, we can make offerings to Him, we can do all these things in a priestly capacity. Now, with that said, I say all that as sort of a preamble to this point. If you are a priest, which you are, don't take my word for it, go to Scripture. If you're a priest, then what are your priestly duties? If you're a priest, what is your priestly duties? Well, principally... It's worship, right? Because that's what the priests were all about. Principally, it's worship. Now, when it comes to worship, how do you know what that looks like? If you're a priest, which you are, and the primary job of a priest is to worship, which it is, then what does that look like? What does that entail? Does God leave it to us to kind of figure out, either as individuals or as a church this morning? When it comes to what we're doing here this morning and glorifying and worshiping God above, has God left you and I to just figure out the best way to do it? I should see more head shaking no. Absolutely not. God has told us, and that's what today's passage is all about. If you would, look with me at verses 29 and 30 of today's reading. We'll look at that, and then we'll just work our way forward. Verse 29. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations that you're going to dispossess, and you displace them, and dwell in their land. Remember, they were about to cross the promised land, go into Canaan. Jericho's walls were about to fall. The Canaanites were about to be crushed beneath the weight of God's own people. Well, when you do that, Moses said, because it's coming, verse 30 says, take heed. When you go there and you beat them down in the promised land, and you take it over, take heed, verse 30, to yourself, that you're not ensnared to follow them after they're destroyed from before you, and, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. Moses is saying, when you get where you're going, for the love of all that's good and right and holy in the universe, please, please, please do not conform your worship to what they've been doing, because it's bad. For the love of all that's right and holy, do not do what you're going to be inclined to do, which is to go in the promised land and adapt to whatever custom they have. As we said at the outset this morning, Moses wrote the book of Deuteronomy near the end of his life in order to give the Israelites some direction after he was gone. And Moses, he knew the people. He knew the people real well. Moses knew the people, and among the things that he knew about the people... He knew that they were really hard headed. This was a hard headed, obstinate bunch. Now, can you think of any examples when the people were hard headed during Moses' administration? Well, there should be a lot of them because it's on virtually every page of every interaction. First off, you remember Moses, he leads them out of Egypt and across the Red Sea parts. And they get to the other side, and you would think that the people would be like, Moses is our man, Moses is the greatest, long live Moses. But what happened? Well, they get to the other side, and their tummies start to rumble with rage. And so what do they do? Well, they grumble. They say, what's with this Moses guy? He brought us out here to die. At least in Egypt, you know, we were eating well. I mean, yeah, there was the oppression, the occasional beating and the like, but we ate here we're going to die so they grumbled in the wilderness often then you remember the time jordan read this morning that they get to sinai right they get to sinai and god comes down and it's so impressive you know voices going on and there's thunder and lightning and fire on the mountain and you would think that you would see such a thing and you'd like instantly you'd become the most pious person around based on that sort of encounter well not so much Moses goes up the mountain, and 40 days later, or some time in between, the people start to worship just whatever they could dig up, a gold calf in this particular case. You think forward from that. You think of when they sent spies into Canaan. And while two of the spies said, hey, we can take them, the other ten said, no way. They were scared and fearful, and they thought that they could not do what God said that they could. And so their punishment was that they had to wander around the desert for 40 years. Moses had seen all this. The people, Korah's rebellion, he had seen all sorts of just crazy stuff. The people were constantly rebelling. They were hard-hearted, hard-headed. They were just a difficult, difficult people. So Moses, again, he's near the end of his life. He's leaving them instructions, and they're still a fairly hard-headed bunch. A lot of them had died in the wilderness, but they're still a hard-headed bunch who seem to learn lessons the hard way. Now, before I go any further, let me step back to that gold calf thing just for a moment. Because this is actually the best of all the examples here. If you remember in Exodus 32, Moses goes up the mountain to talk to God amidst all the fire and lightning. Now, when Moses left, you can see you know, he put on his knapsack or what have you. And, you know, and he waves goodbye to all the Israelites. And they waved him, bye Moses! And he goes up. At this point, he looked over the shoulder and they were still behaving. When Moses left, the people were doing what they should be doing. However... When Moses got up to the top, it appears that God had a lot to say to Moses, and so he was there for 40 days, which is not a tiny amount of time, but it's not that long either, 40 days, 40 nights. Well, in that short, short window of time, the same people that he waved to a little bit earlier and all was well, in that short amount of time, everything fell apart. Everything fell apart. Exodus 32.1 says this, Now, when the people saw that Moses was delayed coming down from the mountain, you know, like a flight delay. When they saw that Moses was delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered to Aaron and said to him, Come, let us make gods, plural, who shall go before us. For as for this Moses who's brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. We don't know what's happened to Moses, Aaron. Have you seen him? I haven't seen him. We haven't seen him. It's been a while, so come. Let's make up some gods that will lead us in his stead. Now, I want you to notice that they straightforwardly say Moses was only delayed. He wasn't dead. He wasn't gone forever. He was just delayed. And in the short amount of time, it's like the people had already moved on. It's like a guy gets in the boat, goes out in the gulf, you know, gets out there a ways, maybe gets a little lost or whatnot, and he's gone for 40 days. And he comes back, and he finds his wife is remarried. His kids have nose rings. You know, they call someone else daddy. He comes back. He's like, what? What has happened? And then he looks and he says, it was only 40 days. This is not 40 years. What has happened? He was only delayed for a season. And yet, it's like immediately, they forgot about him and they turned to other gods. Now, here's the question for us. If they did that, if they just fled to other gods or making gold cows and so forth, if they did that that quickly, when Moses was delayed, imagine what they would do when he was dead. You see, that's what Moses was thinking. In today's text, in Deuteronomy 12, he's remembering what they did when he was just delayed. So he's got to be wondering what they're going to do when he's gone and he's not coming back. And so he tells him. He tells him what's on his heart. He says, write this down. He says, when the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations that you're going to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed Take heed, listen, listen that you are not ensnared to follow them after they're destroyed from before you, and that you do not, do not inquire of their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? I will do likewise. Now, I want you to notice in verses 29 and 30, Moses is identifying two fatal errors. On the one hand, Moses is telling them that they need to be worshiping the right god. That's the first thing. Worship the right God. That's like checkbox number one. Worship the right, correct God. Moses knew that the only proper object of one's worship is he who is worthy of that worship, the God of heaven. In fact, when Moses had come down with the tablets, what was the number one thing written at the top? Thou shall have no other gods before me. So that's number one. Don't worship anybody else. So that's what he wants the people to remember. Don't worship any other gods. Now, the second fatal error that they could make was far sneakier and more insidious. You see, it's not just the object of worship that matters. It's also the method. It's not just who you worship that matters, which is clearly important, but it's also how, how you worship. And if you doubt that, look at his own phrasing. He says straightforwardly here, Make sure that you don't inquire after the gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? I will do likewise. It's not just the who, it's also the how. Even if the people had continued to worship the true God of heaven, worshipped Jehovah, but if they had used pagan means and practices that he had not prescribed for them to do so, that would still have brought his wrath upon them. Some commentators think that's exactly what was going on with the gold calf. Maybe it wasn't that they just cooked up a whole different pagan god. Maybe that's not what happened. In fact, Aaron, probably that wasn't on his radar. But maybe, just maybe, they were still trying to worship the god of heaven, the god of Abraham, but they introduced pagan means. They took an invisible god and they said, you know what? The Canaanites and the Egyptians, they had god you could see. You know, I walk around the corner and there's the big idol to this or to that. They had god you could see. Doesn't it make sense? that we should have a God you can see. And so what form did they use? Well, they used the cow, the calf, because that was one of the primary objects of pagan worship. Whatever the case is, they determined to worship a God in a means and in a way, in a form that he had not prescribed. And this was a terrible idea with bad consequences. God doesn't want his people in Israel or in the present-day church to just come up with how we want to worship him. He doesn't say, you know what, it's a free-for-all. Just do your thing. As long as I'm in there somewhere, as long as you got me on your radar, just go nuts. Do whatever you like. Worship me however you want. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. That's not what we see here. He doesn't want his people to just come up as we go along with whatever seems good to us. And he certainly doesn't. Certainly, certainly doesn't want us to take pagan means to see how pagans worship their gods, whatever those gods look like, and then to engraft that into our worship? Absolutely not. That's one of the things that we see warned about in verses 29 through 30. Now, speaking of terrible ways to worship a God, speaking of just horrific, nightmarish, bad, pagan ways to worship a God, look at verse 31. Verse 31. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. So there are ways that are forbidden. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abomination to the Lord which he hates has been done to their gods. And then he gives an example. He says in verse 31, For they burn even their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. You know, there are a lot of stupid ways to try to flag down or appease a deity who is bigger than you. There are a lot of nightmarish ways to do that. With that said, the hallmark of any religious practice, be it the Canaanites, the Aztecs, whoever, the hallmark of any religious practice that has gone as far to the wrong end as you can, who has hit what you might call peak evil, is when a group, a religion, determines to sacrifice its own children in order to appease their gods. Now, verse 31, where it talks about burning even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods, I will tell you right now that for, I don't know, about the next four minutes, I've got to be pretty blunt in order to do this any justice. So just be forewarned. I've got to be pretty blunt about what this looked like, and I need to draw an application that I think might resonate as well. But it's PG-13 for the next few minutes here. In the land of Canaan, where the Israelites were going, child sacrifice was a dominant practice. As historians note, the Canaanites, what they would do is they would forge a metal deity, forge this metal deity, and then they would heat this metal deity up super hot, put it in the fires, the flames, and the like, until it was super, super hot with its outstretched arms. Then they would place the small children in the arms, at which point they would burn to death. This was a dominant practice. Now, what's going on in the minds of people that they get to that point? What's happened in one's mind that you think that if I do this horrible thing that he thinks it's virtuous? Where's the disconnect here? Well, the people, again, this is peak evil. They'd been conditioned to think that even something as horrific as burning your own children alive was actually virtuous. Actually virtuous. And God smiles at these sort of things. What kind of God is that? As a side note, who wants to worship that? Who wants to worship this? Well, they did evidently. Their society, the Canaanites, served evil gods using evil methods, not just, you know, bad, shaky methods, questionable methods, evil methods. Questionable methods ultimately become evil methods left unchecked. But that's what they were doing, even if it involved the death of that which you would think would be precious to them, their own children. They did that. They offered their own children on the altar, the outstretched arms of these pagan, false, gross, hideous deities. And then they went back home, patted themselves on the back, and told themselves they had done something right. In our enlightened age, right, we looked down our nose at that. We said, boy. What fools they were, those people from that culture far, far away, a long time ago. How barbaric they would be to do such a thing, these heathens, you know. We're much further enlightened than they are. Well, I will tell you a point blank modern day abortion mills put the Canaanites to shame. Try watching the video of an abortion that uses forceps, scalpels, and suction. Tell me how enlightened we are. A video of a child's body parts in a dish? You see, the barbarism is not limited to just yokels from centuries past. Neither is sin. People still lay their children down on idols, idols of choice or what have you, and call themselves virtuous. Is that not what we see in our own age? Moloch, the god of the Canaanites, may go by a different name in our day, but he's still well-fed. His worshippers still exist. Whatever the case, verse 31 invokes this horrific, terrifying example to demonstrate what can happen. To demonstrate what can happen when a society worships their impression of God on the basis of what their sinful heart tells them. Not on the basis of what the true God has said. All right, let's look at verse 32. Verse 32, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, you shall not take away from it. So, Moses again, he's writing to the people and says, Look, I've been with you a long time. Well, here's the deal what you have been told, be careful to observe. You see, it's easy to nod our heads to propositional truth, right? There's any number of things they could say here. We could go, amen. It's not hard to get folks to nod their head to propositional truth. The hard part part is for folks to be careful to observe that truth in their own walk. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Well, here we see that we're supposed to be careful to observe what God has told us, neither to add to it, take new doctrines and to start stacking them, new traditions, what have you, on top of what God has given us, and we're certainly not supposed to take away. Moses says, either one, either one is not acceptable. You know, back in 2009, my family, we moved to Wyoming to serve as church planters, little tiny coal mining town, northeast Wyoming. Now, uh, at that time, I was incredibly green. To listen to my sermons or look at my notes from that time is just one of my greatest embarrassments to this day. Uh, Very, very green. I had a, a lot to learn. And so at that time, planting a church in northeast Wyoming, I said, well, what can I do to prepare myself to do this job better? And I said, aha, I will consult my local library. I'll go find books that deal with church planting. I'm here to be a church planter, so there's a lot of books. I'll go read them. Now, here's one of the many mistakes I made. I wasn't that selective at which books and which authors I chose from. So I looked up all sorts of books on church planning, and I read them all as if they were all equally valid or equally right. I wasn't very selective. I picked a number of books by large, say, mega church sort of pastors, and I figured at that time, like I suspect many of us would, that, hey, they've clearly been successful, therefore they must have something to say. They must have something I can learn from. Now, the more I read these books, the more I realized, wait a second, this isn't what they taught in seminary. This isn't how this is supposed to be done. The more I read some of these books, not all of them, but some of these books, I realized that some of the means that were suggested for growing a church were means that I couldn't reconcile with Scripture. Now, one of the things that stood out was there was a repeated emphasis on making worship relevant and accessible to non-believers and visitors and the like. Now at face value, if you're at 10,000 feet, that doesn't sound horrible. You know, make church accessible, relatable, you know, so visitors and non-church people can become church people. At face value, it doesn't sound scandalous. However, what does it mean to make church relevant? What does it mean to make it accessible? What does it mean to conform church in such a way as that people can acclimate to it from the outside. Lost folks, non-believers, and the like. The books basically suggested that from a church standpoint, church needs to feel pretty relatable in order for lost people to want to get plugged in. Now, let me make clear. Evangelism is good, and we absolutely should. We absolutely should be reaching out to the lost. Evangelism is a good thing. We should want nonbelievers and visitors to visit our church. But there's a caveat. There's a caveat here. See, a worship service should never be tailored. It should never be tailored in order to best fit the wants of lost people. A church service should not be tailored to acclimate lost, unregenerate sinners to what it looks like to attend a worship service. Now, beyond that, and get ready for this, a worship service should also not be tailored to fit the wants of saved people. On the one hand, you don't tailor the worship service to fit the wants and needs of goats and wolves and the like. That doesn't make any sense, right? I hope we can agree to that. But here's the thing. You also don't tailor a worship service to meet the wants of the saved people. So what's left of lost people and saved people aren't the focus of the worship service. Then who is? God is. This should be tailored. This, everything around us, should be tailored with the idea that God is our principal concern. He is the focus. This isn't rotary. This isn't a social group that we're all just part of. This is a worship service in a sanctuary with a pulpit with God's word displayed before us. What is done here should reflect what's in that. What did Moses tell his people? He says, do this. Be careful to do this. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Now, was Moses in the Old Testament? Yes. But this is a principle that holds true even to this day. We are to conform what we do after the desires and the will of the God that we're worshiping. Now, when we came into church this morning, we may have been thinking when we drove into church about what we hoped to get out of the experience today. Now, what's the pastor preaching? Deuteronomy. I don't know about Deuteronomy. We can approach church in this sort of way, and what it does is it makes us consumers coming in to get something that's on our shopping list, things that we want out of the church experience. It's possible we came in these doors looking for good music, good coffee, a sermon that at least doesn't put us to sleep, something along these lines, and when we drive home, I know how this works because I've been there, but when we drive home, we tend to evaluate that experience, right? You know, we're driving, what did you think of the church today? Oh, I like church today. What do you think of the music? Oh, I like this, or I didn't like that, or that song I didn't understand, or what have you. Pastor's tie was too bright. Whatever the deal is, there's things that come on our radar, and we evaluate it as if it's all about us. What did I get out of it? Newsflash! You are not the focus of a worship service. God is. This is God's house. This hour, at the least, can and should be reserved for His glory, and what we do here should be done in His way. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Theologians sometimes refer to this as the regulative principle. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's simple. It's baked in the cake there, regulative. Scripture regulates how we worship. We worship according to the regulative principle that says that God has spoken and he's told us what worship is to look like, or he's given us the key components. They might vary slightly from church to church and how they were applied. However, the basic elements are all here, all found in his word. As we look to wrap up this morning, I want to tell you about a church. We'll call this the Church of Good Intentions. Church of Good Intentions. Now that sounds like a nice, happy, friendly name, Right? The Church of Good Intentions. It sounds like a nice, happy church filled with, undoubtedly, nice, happy people. Now, if you were to go to such a church, what sort of experience would you have? How would the Church of Good Intentions craft its liturgy, craft its worship, craft all that it does? Well, there might be a lot of approaches. They might do the sort of things that, I don't know, if you look back in the Old Testament, there was another pair of guys. They were actually nephews to Moses. Their names were Nadab and Abihu. They might do the sort of things... That Nadab and Abihu did on the time when they said to themselves, you know, let's help God out. Let's come on in and find a creative, helpful new way to light incense in his tabernacle. Now that's very thoughtful of them, right? Well, maybe not so much. The Church of Good Intentions has another patron saint. His name is Uzzah. Now who is Uzzah? What nice, helpful thing. Did Uzzah did. Well, Uzzah, as some of you might remember, he tried to catch the Ark of the Covenant when it was sliding towards the mud, and he assumed that the mud was dirtier than his own sinful hands. Uzzah thought he had God's best interests in mind, right? I'm catching the Ark. I don't want to get dirty. He thought he had God's best interests in mind. Good intentions Uzzah had, irrespective, however, of what God had said about not touching the Ark. Now speaking of helpful guys, you can't look through the New Testament without coming across that helpful example of Saint Peter. You remember the time when Peter very helpfully and very enthusiastically rushed up the hill, the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus talking there with Moses and Elijah. And with all the good intentions in the world, Peter runs up and he says, Hey, it's good we're here because we can make tabernacles tense for all you. We can make tabernacles, tents for Jesus, and then one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Good intentions, right? Well, before the words are even out of his mouth, God stops him and says, no, this is my son, not Moses, not Elijah, this, Jesus, this is my son, you shall listen to him. The church of good intentions repeatedly, even good people like Peter repeatedly can think that they know what God wants. Church of good intentions filled with maybe very nice people who think that they understand what God wants, but sometimes in the face of what He has said. Sometimes in the face of Scripture. Nadab, Abihu, Uzzah, Peter, you'll probably see all of them on the other side. Nadab, Abihu, Uzzah, Peter, they all had good intentions. But what they thought was good was not what God had actually said. And that can be a trap that we can all fall into. We can think about church worship or family worship in a way where we can come up with a really good idea for how to approach a certain thing. And because it makes sense to us and it might help us to grow the church, expand and the like, we can approach something with our priorities in view irrespective of whether God has weighed in on the subject. Well, Nadab, Abihu, Uzzah—they paid the ultimate price. Peter was stopped in his tracks while the great idea was still on his lips, and that's because of this. Even though God loves His people, He takes His commands for worship seriously. Moses knew that from personal experience because he was the one who no one else could even touch the mountain. He was the one who went up with the fire and the smoke and the lightnings and the thunderings and like. He was the one who was tucked in the cleft of the rock as God passed by. He had some idea some idea of who God is and how we're supposed to approach him. He took off his shoes at the burning bush. Why? Because this was holy ground. He knew you approach God correctly, reverently, carefully, according to what he has said. This morning, you are a priest. It's no different for you. How you approach God when you come into church, how you approach God in your own worship, your own family time, is important. How you approach God is to be based on what God has said. You and I, we're all priesthood of believers, and because of that, we're all accountable to make sure that God remains the focus of our family and our church worship, and number two, to make sure that we worship Him according to what He has said. The imperative this morning to go out these doors is to apply that to our own family life and also to apply it collectively to what we do in this house. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.